Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Wow, this writer's conference covers all the new book genres. What workshop are you taking? Whiny vampire fiction. (laughs) Whiny vampire fiction? That's a genre? Yeah, you know... I'm undead. I wish I could do daytime activities. Ugh, I hate garlic, and it's in, like, everything. They write whole novels about that? That's the title of a recent bestseller. What about you? What workshop are you in? Dog and Cat Space Travel Dark Fantasy Graphic Novels. But I'm also attending the Masterclass on Scottish Historical Romance with Spanking. Fifty Shades of Plaid? Smart move. Meanwhile, our show today is live from New Haven with the Yale Writers' Conference. And now his new Christian Antiques and Collectibles fantasy novel is working its way up the somebody-might-buy-it-soon list, Colin McEnroe. So I'm live here in the lobby of the study, which is a hotel in New Haven, but I have to tell you, so I'm going to be honest with you, all right? There's no point in trying to deceive you. We had a technological problem at the beginning of our 1 p.m. Friday broadcast, and we lost a few minutes of this show. And so now that we've discovered this, I am now trying to recreate this. So you'll just kind of have a sense. I want to assure you, didn't miss any of the best parts of the show, but what we're doing here, it's the Yale Writers Conference. We're live in, as I say, in the lobby of this hotel in New Haven. It's a really fun time to be in New Haven, too. I think I did tell this story at the beginning of the show that um, I was uh, I was at Atticus Books last night on my way to a reading that I had to supervise. I'm teaching down here at the Yale Writers Conference, and I had to supervise a student reading. I was picking up a cup of coffee before I went there. There was a woman standing next to me, and she, um, she said, oh, because of you, because of what you said on the air, I'm about to go see Martin Hayes, the wonderful Irish fiddler at the uh, New Haven International Festival of Art and Ideas. And, and I said, well, that's wonderful. And then she said, you know, Mike Pesca is across the street, I'm referring to our friend Mike Pesca, uh, who now does a fabulous daily podcast on Slate. So I walked over there with my cup of coffee, left it outside the Yale Art Gallery, walked in and said hello to Mike Pesca. And you really get the feeling that we're at some kind of crossroads here. I mean, the world is all coming to New Haven right now. Anyway, what we did here today uh, at the study was put together a, a group of authors. Some of them you'll hear at the beginning of the show. Uh, some of them come a little bit later. Uh, so at the beginning of the show, uh, you meet M.G. Lord. Um, she is a recovering political cartoonist. She was a political cartoonist for Newsday for many years and also uh, a columnist there. Uh, but she's moved on to do other things. Uh, and in particular, she's uh, starting to write these wonderful books. Uh, they are sort of a blend of history and biography in many cases. She wrote a biography of Barbie. Uh, she wrote a biography of Elizabeth Taylor, although not exactly a, a biography, but also just a, um, a sort of critical analysis of the implications uh, of Elizabeth Taylor on American culture. Uh, she wrote a book called AstroTurf, which is simultaneously a biography and memoir of her father, and also um, a book about the aerospace industry in which he worked. Um, so she's with me uh, on this show. Also, uh, one of the other faculty members here at the Yale Writers Conference, Lewis Byard. Uh, Lewis Byard writes uh, historical fiction, historical detective fiction. You're going to 
here as we go along, we have a lot of conversations about genre and what genre you actually belong to. Because one of the things that's happened in the world of books is it, it's not no longer just sort of fiction, nonfiction biography. Everybody's got some highly reticulated multi-hyphen genre. But anyway, his latest book is called uh, Roosevelt's Beast. Uh, it's about an actual trip that Teddy Roosevelt and Kermit Roosevelt took into the Amazon not the big conglomerate that sells books and everything else, uh, the other kind of Amazon, into the Amazon. Uh, this actually did happen, but Lewis has kind of ratcheted up uh, the terror uh, and the fear, and it's a beast that leads no footprints and, and, and stuff like that. Um, also with us, uh, Jeff Vandermeer. Jeff Vandermeer is a very, very hot writer in, in well, you know, you'll, what's now being called cli-fi and, and, uh, and what was the eco-fabulism. He writes... Um, about things that are happening uh, in the world, in, in a world that seems like fantasy, but it's a kind of fantasy that's triggered by deteriorations in the ecosystem and in the climate. So that's who we've got here. We're going to be rotating other people in and out as we go along. Um, I think we can pick up the action uh, right about here. So let's try that. So we're going to try to give you a little bit of a sense of what writers' conferences are like, and we're going to talk about some issues that are out there in the world of writing and publishing. But so we're going to begin. I like parables, you know. I like parables. And so MG uh, has MG Lord has a has a parable for us from her class uh, that she was teaching yesterday. You're teaching a class on biography, right? Biography, and I said I learned how the low regard in which biography was held on the very first <laughs> morning of the conference when I was sitting with. Two very compelling gentlemen, friendly, smiling, welcoming guys over our scrambled eggs. And this woman comes up with her plate. She puts her plate down and says, what are you doing at the conference? You know, what are you doing? And the friendly guy says, biography. The color drains from her face. She pulls her plate away and she says, oh, I thought you were writers. <laughs> but see, I'm, I teach humor. That's got to be, I got to rank lower than biography, right? I don't know. You know? Biography is pretty scorned. Yeah. But you know I, what the humor section looks like in a bookstore, too? It's like, you know. You mean the one that everybody goes to and buys things? Biography <laughs> is the one with the dust on it. Well, I suppose that's true. But actually, even a, even a brick-and-mortar bookstore has become has become something of an eco-fabulist fantasy. <laughs> um, in you know with them the ego fabulous are so much higher on the sort of this brahmin hierarchy that we're talking about right now i'm trying to figure out how i can position elizabeth taylor as cli-fi yeah well you have to prove yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think the i think the abbreviation would stand for something else but um um, no you have to prove that her hair uh spray actually exfoliated the ozone layer or something like that so but i think actually the areas of fantasy yeah. and stuff like that, are they, are they have risen in the estimation of the literary world, right? It's so much well, cooler now to be a sci-fi writer or anything like that. Probably. I, I think part of it's pop culture. Part of it's also this weird thing where, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood's books were so popular, and right. there are a lot of people within genre who are, like, shaking their fists. What does Margaret Atwood know about science fiction? She's not <laughs> one of us. Um, but in actual fact, that's opened up a lot of opportunities. And um, I think also the fact that our world is getting stranger by the minute right? and our problems are getting stranger and more absurd, it kind of lends itself to... to you know that genre. No, I actually slapped the genre on you as I introduced you. you. And it might, sl- it, it it might be the hurts. wrong genre. <laughs> it sting when uh, I it stings. Uh, no, actually, I, I, I said last night, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to become a micro genre in myself. I just keep adding a genre to each thing I do. Yeah. So it started historical, then mystery thriller, 
uh, psychological thriller, alternative history, horror, fantasy. I just keep adding it on in the hope that I'll find a niche that nobody else occupies. But I hope the proliferation of all these genres, as we keep subgenres, will eventually nullify the whole idea of genre. So it'll be there'll, be there'll be so many that the whole idea of genre divisions will cease to have any meaning. Either that or there'll be a yeah. shelf that says Bayard S. There you right. go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll settle for an adjective. So are you going to yeah. stick with Roosevelt Punk Punk? Uh, or <laughs> yeah, Roosevelt. Roosevelt Punk? Is that, is that, yeah, I, I like, like that. I like that. No, it has to be like Roos Punk. Roos Punk. Ted, 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 Ted Punk. Punk. Ted Punk. All right, you have well, to tell you I mean, biography is, I think, what marks a good biography is, is compassion on the part of the biographer. It's mm. not just a rigorous attention to detail. There has to be some way that the biographer himself or herself accesses the humanity of his or her subject. Mm -hmm. And I had... I have never had a moving experience at a writer's conference before, except maybe that I want to move away quickly and not give people my home address. That kind of move. No, but in, in our very first class, something, and I see a member of the class out, something extraordinarily tender and beautiful happened. Um, and it didn't start out tender and beautiful. One of, one of the people in the class is working on a biography of Bill Malden, the World War II cartoonist, who happened to have been at Yale teaching two courses, my mentor here, and the man who got me a job as a political cartoonist right after I left Yale, where I was cartoonist for the Yale Daily News. We had a very close relationship. And the, the, the writer is talking about the vast resources that he's bringing to this biography. This person who's writing the biography. Yes, the of person who's writing. And then he pulls out his computer and he says, and you wouldn't believe the kind of stuff you can find on eBay. And to my horror and to the horror people around me as I burst into tears, there's a, um, there was this tremendously moving note encouraging, you know, encouraging me to continue to do my work you know, specifically praising a drawing. Um, it had a little drawing by Malden himself on it, you know, Dear MG, you know, you have it. So I hadn't seen this in years, and I realized two things. One, my ex-husband, a rare book and manuscript dealer, probably sold this thing to an autograph <laughs> dealer. It is now more than I can afford on eBay. I, I am, after years of writing sentences and paragraphs, working again on a graphic novel, and to have my late mentor talking about drawing, I kept thinking, oh, what I would love to have this in my house. So as I do my best to fight back tears, but one member of the class bids on it, mm -hmm. then another, and finally a third, seeing that I would probably fall apart and we would lose at least 45 minutes of seminar, <laughs> just buys the thing outright. And, you know, I actually thought it was, ex it was extraordinarily touching. I think it's an applaudable, I mean, happy really ending story, a, you know? What a fantastic, what a fantastic and sensitive class, well-suited to the you know, to the spurned and ridiculed discipline of biography. You know, my students are sitting here thinking, wow, nothing that moving ever happens in our class. We have to, we need some drama, right? We need to cook up some drama here. You need an ex-husband who sells your private correspondence <laughs> to an autograph dealer. Does that money come off their registration fee, by the way? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Terry, should we talk about that? It'll all be worked out somehow. Yeah. But it, the story kind of has everything, too, including the fact that here we are at a writer's conference, but everybody's kind of wired all the time, right? Everybody's, as you're talking, your student has eBay up. Well, a little a beautiful onion skin paper and, you know, dear MG in handwriting. And I was, you know, I was kind of aghast. It was like looking at my old underwear from 1978 <laughs> if a famous person had drawn on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But, it, you know, this is something that's a theme we've, re we've returned to on this show a lot over the last few weeks. The, the virtualization of everything, you know, that the idea that so much now, I mean, at, at every, any given moment, first of all, if you're teaching, a lot of your students are online or, you know, I mean, I don't know, your classes, they probably have all the manuscripts in Dropbox. I mean, everything is, mm -hmm. everybody's sort of tethered to the Internet at all times, right? No. Well, my students skew a little older. Dropbox was a very big deal for them. Oh, really? And some of them never did quite surmount that. Yeah. So there's one guy with a computer open on, on the computer. But these are, these are historical geeks, yeah. and they love the, the real thing. There's somebody who works at the Folger, mm -hmm. and she manages the first folios you know, of Shakespeare. So they, they like the, the real the real deal. Yeah, I mean, we, we basically ban all devices from the, the classroom oh, when, really? we're, when we're working with them so they can concentrate. Um, in fact, an instructor of ours, Nancy uh, Hightower, writes for the Post that she actually has a part of her class where she blindfolds them and has them sit in darkness for 10 minutes just to kind of clear their minds. <laughs> now that I say that, it doesn't sound... <laughs> but, but, um, but it really does, it does help their concentration. They, 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 we learn that focus is important. Um, I think uh, I'd like to move the blindfold lower so it's around their mouths. Wow. <laughs> but only for 10 or 15 10 minutes. But you know, yeah, we also teach money. teenagers a lot. I might actually be able to deliver yeah. a lecture. <laughs> we teach teenagers a lot. They're not really into using computers except as TVs, and, mm -hmm. and they're perfectly fine writing longhand. So sometimes I think this is an addiction of late 20-somethings to 40-somethings uh, and not necessarily the whole next generation of well, the writers. blindfolding thing is very Jonathan Franzen. Doesn't he do that? Didn't he do that? He At one point when he was trying to write, um, yeah. I can't remember whether it was the corrections or the, the one that came after that, he would, in his apartment, blindfold himself and just and desensitize himself and disconnect himself, like not just turning off computers and stuff like that, but really trying to, I mean, he was like, you know, putting yeah. earplugs in and stuff yeah. like that. It's, I mean, either you're like overconnected or you're maybe overcompensating for being overconnected. Franson's a drama queen, if you ask me. I don't, know. I don't, I don't, <laughs> get, that. I don't get that at all. All right, we're here uh, live at the study. Uh, you're listening to Louis Bayard and, uh, and to Jeff Vandermeer and to M.G. Lord. We're going to be rotating some other people uh, in and out of there. Um, well, we, we, we have to say the A word. We have to talk about this. Uh, the, uh, this week, Amazon, because in fact it is not significantly or sufficiently inserted into our lives, has debuted a new phone. You now have an Amazon phone. And among the things that the phone can do is you'll be able to point it at things and it will immediately tell you on the phone how to buy that thing immediately. Hopefully you won't be able to do this with people. You won't be able to do that. But, um, and, and it's just sort of the kind of the rounding out. So I was, you guys were in New Canaan last night. I was asking you if there was a bookstore there. You gratifyingly said yes. But, I mean, these, the, the world that we're living in right now, I mean, Amazon is both a wonderful thing in the sense that we can all get all the books we want, but it's also our digital overlords, right? I mean, are, do you... Do you it's, it's hard for authors to talk about Amazon paranoia because you don't want to tick off Amazon, right? <laughs> they don't know this is happening. You can see what's on, in your heart. Well, I think indie bookstores are doing really well these days. Yeah. yeah. And brick and mortar is actually more alive. I mean, I was in Seattle, and they just had a convention of indie booksellers, and they were, for the first time in years, really upbeat. City Lights had an amazing year last year. Um, so, you know, there's more to this ecosystem than, than just Amazon. And it's really, I think, still hard to tell how it's going to play out. Um, I'm not going to buy their phone, but then... <laughs> I'm kind of a Luddite. I mean, I don't even, har I practically don't even have a phone, let alone a smartphone, so. 
How can you be an eco-fabulous if you don't have technology? Uh, isn't that like the point of <laughs> maybe that's maybe that is it actually it's it's all those things that we have that right. screwed up the place that yes. you're writing about the that's right the wetlands <laughs> they're all screwed up because we got all this technology all right we're, we're, what we're going to do we're going to take a really quick break here we'll come back we might sort of uh, rotate around have some different thesis some different voices and uh, we'll just keep rotating guests here but uh, we're live we're in New Haven let's do more applause just to prove that we exist. The Yale Writers Conference will be back. All right, we are live from the lobby of the study or the study of the lobby on Chapel Street in New Haven. It's really our favorite home. In fact, why, why ever go back to our studio? We could just do all of our shows. They take very good care of us. They bring us water. We don't ask for much more than that. Uh, a place to roam around and some drink, clean drinking water. Uh, this is the Yale Writers Conference. Well, this isn't the Yale Writers Conference, but we are at the Yale Writers Conference. Uh, with us right now is the director, Terry Hawkins, uh, of the Writers Conference. Also with us, Ann Vandermeer. You may recognize the uh, last name, uh, and she is also a writer. We have to sort of pick uh, her, uh, her genre as well. Tell me again the name of your, your latest. The name of my latest book, it's an anthology. It's called The Time Traveler's Almanac. It's 100 years of time travel uh, short stories, and it's about 1,000 pages. Whew. So when I do a book, I do a book. Yeah. So <laughs> have, have, uh, so, and, so, and do the time travel stories, so that they, they take place, and they were published across a really long continuum? Right. These are stories that have been published over the past 100 years. Actually, the, the first story was published, I think, in 1881 mm -hmm. by Edward Page Mitchell. And it's called The Clock That Went Backwards, which actually predates H.G. Um, Wells. A lot of people think that H.G. Wells created the first time travel story, but he didn't. And as a matter of fact, when H.G. Wells was writing his stories, you know, War of the Worlds, we're all very familiar with his stories, they didn't even have a term called science fiction back then. They used to call those stories science romance, which I find quite interesting. Because when I was doing the book, I noticed that a lot of the stories, after I had compiled it, a lot of the stories were actually kind of romantic in a way. And I think that's one of the appeals of time travel. Actually, I'm working on a time travel story in which the protagonist travels back to 1821 and kills the guy who writes the first time travel story and then the whole genre disappears. Oh no. It never oh, no. happens. And I will disappear. No. Yeah, no. Never, I do no, other yeah, things. No, too. actually you wind up in his swamp, I think, you know, in, the, in my in Area X? Yeah, in Area X. I've, I've actually been to Area X. I have been there. So is there there really is an Area X or is this something you call Area X? Well, there's I'm a real the place person. that that inspired Area X and yeah. then w I found recently that Area X infiltrated our house and we had to have some walls removed and redone. So, yeah. <laughs> Area X started out into his imagination and it came into the real world. So well, what, what kind of disinfectant do you use in Area X? <laughs> I mean, it, uh, excellent. I yeah, tried you know, everything. Like, uh, sounds like a sounds like a pretext for a Lysol commercial or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Terry, uh, your new book is uh, American Neolithic. Tell us about that too. Well, I, I think I've been thinking about what genre I could choose. We're going to assign one to you if you don't. Oh, come no, no. I, I think Paleo Fabulous. Paleo Fabulous. How about that? I love it. Stone Punk. Yeah. Okay, stone punk. Uh, I, I like. I, I can stone live with punk. that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's um, it's it's speculative fiction and political satire. Uh, though how sat how satirical it, it is remains to be seen. It's set in a moving target near future, in which drones patrol the skies. An organization very like the National Security Agency, which is known as the Homeland Police, um, have jurisdiction, exclusive jurisdiction over any legal action touching on national security. 
Uh, and because of a terror scare, we've passed the Patriot Amendments to the United States Constitution, effectively depriving ourselves of the la our last remaining civil liberties. Wait a minute. Uh, what part of this is speculative? Uh, that's what so I mean. far, I just, you've just described basically the, you know, today's front page of the New York Times. Yeah, but, I, I, uh, I basically lucked out. The Republic didn't. But yeah. that, I'm what matters, after all. So but, what's, the, what's the Neolithic part? The Neolithic is a Neanderthal, yeah. uh, the la member of the last surviving band of Neanderthals. He lives with his family, his tribe, in an abandoned uh, Chinese restaurant supply warehouse on the Lower East Side. Uh, he is the last literate Neanderthal, and for that reason, the, the tribe asks him to go out into the world to earn money. Mm. Uh, he mixes himself up with uh, some, uh, a hip-hop band and is framed for a murder. So as a result, we have to bring in an attorney uh, to represent him, and the rest of the book is basically a legal thriller. I think I saw that Law and Order episode, actually. Yeah, but exactly. um, I thought you were going to say he was the last Neanderthal. He's living with his parents. He's not dating. <laughs> you know, there just aren't going to be any more Neanderthals. I just I hate to brag, actually, but I've done the 23andMe thing where you you know you spit into the thing and they then they analyze your DNA. And I can almost guarantee that I have more Neanderthal blood than almost any. I have a very high ratio. Of Neanderthal. So if you have any questions, you didn't actually a, have to tell us that. No, I do. I I've got a T-shirt. I mean, uh, you know. I, oh well, then you if go. you have a T-shirt, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I consider it a point of pride here. Um, well, you know, one of the things we want to talk a little bit about, um, and and Anne volunteered to be interested in this, uh, is a piece. This happens all the time, right? I mean, this essay gets written over and over again. Uh, a guy named Tim Parks, a writer named Tim Parks, writing in the New York Review of Books, is writing the latest essay, saying that basically. What's happening here at the Yale Writers Conference is that we're teaching people to write deep fiction for an audience that can't read deep fiction anymore or that increasingly kind of sets itself up to be interrupted. Not, not only is life full of interruptions uh, and, and, and full of, as you were just suggesting. That can't even read the subtitle on my book. <laughs> It's such a long, it's TLDR, you know? I mean, it's, I just, um, but. Yeah. I rest my case. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, so, and so, obviously, this, this creed de cour, it happens all the time, right? People aren't going to be able to read anymore. People not only are interrupted constantly, they want to be interrupted constantly. You feel like your day isn't going, or people feel like, not your, your Luddite husband, but, um, but people feel like their day isn't going very well if they're not, constantly interrupted, that there's a distraction that leads to a fragmented consciousness, and that it just, like I'm trying to read the book Possession right now by A.S. Byatt, which mm -hmm. was in the early 1990s. Uh, it's very similar to M.G.'s story. It's about, you know, letters that suddenly surface. Uh, and, and I'm- Except those are all made up letters. Those are all yeah, made up letters that don't involve an actual perfidious person. An ex-husband, no. Yeah. There are no perfidious ex-husbands in that book to my recollection. But I'm realizing my consciousness is not in good shape. I'm having a hard time. You know, this is a book that you really need to read about 100 pages at a time, and I just don't do that anymore. Yeah, so. I, it, it is kind of scary when I think about it. I work in the computer industry, so I have to have my computer and my email because that's part of my job. And I realized after some time that my attention span is a lot smaller and shorter than it used to be. And that's kind of scary to me because I used to be able to spend large amount of time just concentrating and focusing on a certain project and now I, I find myself constantly saying well I need to check my email now or I need to look at this or I need to get up and 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 it is kind of frightening so I have to actually force myself and we see a lot of people nowadays doing different things to try and close those gaps to try and stop themselves from 
being interrupted constantly. In, in the computer world, we have programs like NetNanny and Freedom that cut off your time on the internet, so you can be on the computer, but not searching the internet. So I think those things are important, but it, it, it does change your brain. There's like this pleasure thing that when you hear that ding of an email coming in, it just makes you feel good. So you really want to keep getting that ding. What's going on? What's going on? Who needs me? Who needs me? And, and um, I think it hurts us in the, in the long run. So one of the things we do with our students is we make them, it's not like we don't do what Nancy Hightower does with the blindfold, but we do make them sit down and focus on writing the physical act of it, not doing it on a computer, but to remove writing from the computer and the physical act of writing on a piece of paper with a pen. And it's surprising how many students that we work with that do that, that really appreciate that, and it changes the way they look at their own work. Are you I doing that here at the Raiders mm -hmm. Conference? We are. Terry, what were you going to say? No, I, I simply find myself becoming terribly anxious if I'm separated from the phone. Mm -hmm. and yeah. For no reason. I mean, no rational reason. It's just that I can't check things every five minutes. Well, you have another career. I mean, you know, you have clients who could be in big <laughs> I, trouble, Jester, in your other careers. So. Yes. If that. I were your client, I'd be reassured to know that you're unhappy when you're separated from your phone. Thank you so much. Let's hope they're listening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have that same reaction, despite the fact that I am a profoundly unpopular person, and I almost never get called by anybody. Um, I, I was on a, on the, the sort of the real epiphany about this. I came back from a 10-day trip or a seven-day trip to Ireland. Uh, I got back to Logan Airport, turned on my phone for the first time, thinking, well, they'll you know let a thousand flowers bloom. <laughs> Look at all the messages, and there's nothing. Yeah. Nobody had called me for seven days. <laughs> and I'm like sort of holding it up, thinking maybe I'm just not getting the satellite signal or something that's going to load. No, nobody. But 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 we still think, and it's I think there's a McLuhan thing happening, right? And we've extended our neurological system sure. into yes. out, out you know. So we now think of this as like dendrites or something. Well, it could be that all your listeners knew you were away and so didn't want to bother you. Yeah, I tried comforting myself with uh, that, but it didn't really do any good. I was trying to help. Yeah, no, nobody was calling, nobody was. But, but see, that speaks, though, in to writers, okay? So writers have to be able to concentrate. Right. Writers have to be able to, uh, to disconnect. And, but writers have to have readers. Right, but see, that's also a change I see in recent years is that now I feel like the readers are more connected to the writers in ways they never were before and sometimes that's a good thing but sometimes I can also see the downfall of that because now the writers have the reader's voice in their head mm -hmm. they have all of their opinions everything that they want to hear and see and do and what you need to do and how this is wrong and how it needs to be better so now the writer has to deal with not just their own demons and how they're going to figure out the next part of the story but now they've got their their readers voices in their head Oh, we and can ignore those. It's very difficult <laughs> to ignore when you're looking at your your um, reviews on Amazon or Goodreads I'd never or any of those other places. On Amazon. And I don't think that that writers should look at the reviews. Yeah, I, I think that I, they it, should not look at them because then they end up with those voices in their head, and it's difficult for them to write the next thing. One of the worst experiences I've ever had is reading a bad review on Amazon that I agreed with. <laughs> oh, no. It's just devastating. I've you, never you really had... do. You don't review, look at any no, of your I, reviews I on Amazon. I just find it's really irritating to do that. Hmm. And I, I don't. I actually don't understand the fragmentation either hmm. and the lack of focus. I mean, frankly, when I, when that began to happen to me, my focus as a writer, I thought it doesn't have to do with our technological society. It's just the menopause. And I went to my doctor, <laughs> got a little Ritalin, and I'm focusing just like I used to when I was 19. <laughs> and I have a prescription. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there's so many ways I want to respond to no, that. No, but I mean, I wouldn't. Can I have yeah. some? Um, 
You know, but I, I know what you mean, what you mean, but once again... I, I think it's your skill set, your ability to focus diminishes as you get older. I wouldn't say for you it was lack of estrogen, but it might be for me. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention right there. What would you say? It was, it's better <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> um, but once again... You Maybe mean, Neanderthals metabolize estrogen differently. That's what... <laughs> Actually, we've been told that. Anyway. Yeah, that's we're not, what I. That's kind we're of not I, like you. Um, the, I um, learned that in Terry's book. I mean, it's not human DNA. No, it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. really fascinating. Um, yeah, there's a lot of foods that don't agree with me and stuff like the stuff that you people eat. It's I, I not can't human DNA. <laughs> the, um, you know, even sort of looking at the people who apply to this program, Terry. I mean, certainly the dream of writing and writing deep fiction in many cases for a mass audience is still there, right? I mean, yes, absolutely. You, you have, I mean, do you sort of get a sense of who's coming here? What do they want to do? Why are they here? Well, it seems to me that, first of all, in, in our first session, we, we don't address genre fiction at all. It's simply fiction or nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I think those people are interested in writing the big literary novel, yeah. and we encourage them to do so by introducing them to the publishing world. We have panels of agents, editors, small presses. We actually had somebody from Amazon here, I, I hesitate to admit, but, uh, and he was very nice. Yeah. I had to say that. Right. Um, but, you don't want to wind up at the re-education camp. Oh, no, 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 with those electrodes in my head, no way. Um, but in the second session, we do address genre fiction and cross-genre fiction, and those people as well are, are interested in publishing, of course, but within narrower confines. Um, do we need to take a break here? I just heard the PA cut out. Are we okay? Are we technologically? We're okay, okay. Um, one thing I want to say is as we're going through this discussion, Josh uh, is over there with a floating mic. If people have things that they want to say, if uh, anybody in the audience is sort of welcome to ask a question or make a comment, particularly as we talk about this very interesting area uh, of distraction, uh, we're here live from the Yale. So stick up your hand or something like that if you, you, you want to jump in there. Because, you know, what, what was interesting about the New York Review of Books piece, in which Tim Parks was arguing about this, that the readers, the readers can't concentrate on literary fiction. Yeah. They can't, they can't, was that the first wave of responses against that piece were writers tweeting. Um, <laughs> when did that come Makes out, sense. by the way? Sometime within the last couple of weeks here. I, I okay. mean, I can pull it up during the break and see yeah. the date of it. Um, but, you know, obviously we've... And then, but other writers had kind of interesting things to say, including John Banville, who's a pretty fabulous Booker Prize winning writer, said, well, the reality is if you write literary fiction, you've got about 2,000 readers. You've always had 2,000 readers. Now, you're nodding. You agree with that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do to some extent because, I mean, it, it used to be that good sales of a, of a literary fiction book were considered to be two to 5,000. Yeah. Now, of course, for economic reasons, it's 20 to 25,000. But um, truly, it seems as though the audience always has been fairly limited. I mean, MG, would you agree with that? Well, a lot of those books just sit on coffee tables. Yeah, you know, the, you know, or the, over there. Yeah, the, the, the trick is to have the 2,000 people through word of mouth make you feel like you have to have that on your coffee table yeah. on the Upper East Side of Manhattan or in the Hamptons or on the West Side of Los Angeles where you can say it's being adapted into um, you know, a film. Because mm -hmm. we all know that books are just the larval form of movies. Well, I was surprised last night at how many people actually were, the people who were at the reading, I could tell whether they were joking or not, but they said, a couple of the readers said, because I want to make a lot of money. Clearly, uh, <laughs> yeah. they were joking. Yeah. Uh, but a couple of them said, because I want to write, work, make a lot of money, I'm, write, I'm working in, and then they named some genre. 
that was not eco-fabulism, but it might have been dark fantasy or something like well, that. Well, the porno fantasy. one might go somewhere. You know, <laughs> didn't you have the, you know, the... The listeners don't know about the porno oh. one, right? That was just a little story that we told before the show started. <laughs> <laughs> well, the listeners know about the porno one now, and they're very interested. But, they're pro- but that's probably the one that's going to have the big, you know, cash register payday. That's an antiquated analog thing, a yes, cash I, register that people used to use before there were that's online the sales. What, what, what is a cash register? I don't know what that is. Um, the, we're dating ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> the, but I mean, just to sort of back to your point, because I think it's an interesting one. I mean, the point that you were making before, and similar to Terry's point, and similar to John Banville's point, is the number of people who are willing to read serious literary fiction has always been a pretty low number. And the ones who stop being able to read it go to their doctors, they get Ritalin, and then they can start reading it again. Um, and and there, there wasn't ever any other huge, big market for... Well, I don't think that children with ADHD should necessarily be medicated, but adults with ADHD, hell, you only have a few years left. Why yeah. not? Why not notice them? Yeah. Notice what's happening. <laughs> Why not be aware of them and contribute? I, but I also do wonder whether occasionally it's the case that, um, that there's a book that reminds people. Because I think the other thing that happens is you get lazy, you stop, you know, there's a lot of good stuff on HBO, you, you stop reading or stop doing the kind of deep reading. I mean, for me, I, I read The Goldfinch this year, and I realized there's this huge Goldfinch backlash going on, which I'm not part of. I actually loved it. And it kind of reminded me of the deep reading experience that I loved, you know, reading an 800-page book and not caring about anything else. Um, and, I, and it made me think, I should go read Possession, because I never read that one, too. Mm-hmm. I think a book can sometimes tip you in that direction. Oh, absolutely. I think that when you get into a wonderful novel like that and it pulls you in and you're in a different world and you don't want to leave it, that keeps you from being distracted with so many different things going around. There's so many things competing for our time, for entertainment. If you're going to make a commitment to sit down for a couple of hours in a chair to read a book, that's quite a commitment when you could spend you know, five minutes watching a YouTube video, an hour and a half watching this movie. But to make that commitment and really get lost and immersed in a book, that's very special. And, and when you do that, you come out refreshed, I feel. Yeah. I feel like you do. Colin, I think, I think you made a very good point by raising the good stuff on HBO because there was a point at which uh, reading was sort of the, alter- the intelligent person's alternative to television. Mm-hmm. And that is no longer quite as stark a choice. Yeah, I well, think people who would have been writing novels 20 years ago are writing episodic television now. And insofar as you want financial rewards, it's, you know, it's a writer's medium. Mm-hmm. And the shows are intelligent. So... Um, I have a miserable life, which means it's a lot easier for me to throw myself into eight hours of long fiction or, you know, 12 hours of binge television. But for people who are engaged and happy, it must be more challenging. Um, No, but I mean, the the episodic TV is extraordinarily rich. And I do feel sort of vaguely smug that I don't live in Albuquerque and cook meth. You know, I mean, it's like... I. My life is unpleasant, but it hasn't deteriorated I, to that point. So I think you've just set the bar pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You want to float my Josh has got the mic. Come float this over to Josh. Just suggesting eco fabulous again. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, isn't the real problem uh, novelists writing articles during downturns in their careers and mistaking their own book scan numbers for a trend? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, Donna Tartt is not writing that essay right now about how people aren't right, reading long exactly. books. Exactly, and, and I find it, it is actually remarkable that you can kind of, like, 
chart somebody's you know despair with the literary scene from where their position is at at the moment. And so some of this stuff I just re disregard because I I feel like it's false or anecdotal uh, information that. Uh, I mean, we, we, we teach the Shared Worlds teen writing camp, and those teenagers are immersive readers. Um, they may be the cream of the crop in a way in, in terms of, you know, wannabe writers or other creative people, but they are immersive readers, and they are the next generation, so. Are they, no, are they reading, are they reading YA fiction? Because that, that's our next segment. That's but the thing that's yeah. so funny is that a lot of them don't read YA fiction. They go right to the adult uh, fiction hmm. section. Um, but they're going all over the, the shelves. They're not sticking to YA. And, and, and you know, part of the YA fantasy. thing is, you know, uh, as you know, there's a study that says, says that 55% of it is, written by, uh, is read by adults, mm -hmm. right? So some of those teenagers are, are not reading it. They're reading the adult fiction. Right. And we are going to be uh, dealing with that in the next section. Speaking of next sections, now is a good time for us to take a break. Uh, let's give a big hand for everybody who's participated so far and also to prove that there are living beings here. We'll be back from the study, from the lobby of the study after this. Can you do it at the edge of my hairline so it doesn't show? Ow! There must be a way to implant these Amazon chips without it hurting so much. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Lily Tyson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in our intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Megan Kelly. For articles, show pages, and a first draft of the Faith Middleton Show staff's Amish cyberpunk metaphysical western, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, Slate culture critic June Thomas joins the scramble. And now, back to Colin. And now we're back. Now we're back at the study, the lobby of the study, uh, which is a beautiful hotel on Chapel Street in New Haven where we love to come and do shows, so much so that we've done it twice this week. Once for the uh, Yale, for the New Haven uh, International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas, and now for the Yale Writers Conference. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of wonderful writers here uh, with us today. And uh, before we do that, though, we've got also a nice crowd here at the study, and we've got uh, somebody there with a floating mic. Uh, you've got a question or a comment? Yes, I wanted to pick up on a uh, comment that M.G. Lord made this morning in her workshop on biography, and that is that contemporary biography includes the relationship between the writer and the subject of the biography, which is a change from what biography was thought of in the past. You're not supposed to put yourself into it. So it's almost like it's a combination of biography and memoir. I just wondered if you would like to comment on that. Well, Nicholson Baker's You, you and yeah. I about John Updike kind of started it. And another great classic in that form would probably be Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage about his inability to read D.H. Lawrence. I mean, he wants to write about D.H. Lawrence, but it's about everything but D.H. And I think that's a great way to write a book. I mean, some, sometimes the artificial structure of biography where you recede into the background and the, and the, and the, you know, you're the central figure comes forward just doesn't work. And if there is an interesting tension between the writer of the story and the larger figure, that tension, I think, should be explored. I, I wonder also, not, not to overhammer the whole sort of... Um, oh, hammer. ...the parallelism between sort of what's on screens and what's in books, but documentary has emerged as such a huge form, and so many documentaries are about that same tension, right, between the, the effort of making the documentary and whatever resistance the subject is putting up. Do you want to elaborate on that? Or just no, absolutely. Well, even something... <laughs> 
well, I, I myself am working on a graphic, com, com, a, a graphic novel now, and one of the more interesting graphic novels that I've read recently is something called Logic Comics. It's about the life and ideas of Bertrand Russell. But in order to tell the life and ideas of Bertrand Russell, a group of scholars in different disciplines and artists all get together. So the frame on the story about Bertrand Russell is about the coming together of all these different scholars in Athens. And there's a color change in the book. I mean, it's full color at the beginning, and then it goes dramatically into black and white as the, as the narration of Bertrand Russell's life and the genesis of his ideas begins. I mean, in a way, it's, it, it's, it's, it's acknowledging that any time you write something, some opinion is involved. You can't put in every detail. You, it, the details have to be selected. And readers now maybe want to know who's selecting the details because it will shape the entire story that follows, whether it's a graphic novel or a biography. And it's a little bit of postmodernism, too. I mean, we li if, if we could accept a crude definition of postmodernism, that it explores its own form and calls attention to its own form, it was sort of inevitable that biographers were going to have to start writing about being, bi being biographers. I mean, that's sort of, sort of part of the water we swim in these days. Yeah. Well, I just love the fact that biography that was so sneered at yesterday at breakfast <laughs> is now becoming, you know, a central part of our conversation here. Right. Um, we, we still have the floating mic. Stick a hand up if you also uh, want to make a comment or ask a question or uh, join the conversation we're having. Um, in the absence of that, though, I did want to sort of bring up something. Jeff has already alluded to it, which is, you know, the, uh, and there's a piece uh, in Slate uh, right now about the, exactly what he's talking about, that, that the, the statistics vary. But one of the things that's cited in this state, in this, uh, in the Slate piece, is that 20% of young adult fiction is bought by people between the ages of 30 and 44 who absolutely have no connection to, are not buying it as a gift for somebody more appropriately uh, a young adult audience. Uh, now, the person writing this piece sees this as um, a declinist moment, uh, something worth kind of despairing over. And I, I take it that you're ready to d join in that despair, and then we'll see if yeah. we'll find if somebody else can take up the cause of adults reading. Oh, you want me to join in the despair? Well, I, no, I mean, <laughs> just from the Slate article, the, the writer suggests that young adult novels tend to have happy resolutions because young people can't get their heads around the fact that after you go down, you come back up again, mm. whereas literary fiction can have darker endings and be more complex and more suited for older readers because, speaking as an old person, you can go down many times and very low and still get back up again, <laughs> and Ritalin helps. Right. <laughs> well, who wants to, anybody want to push back against that? I mean, and just, uh, like, I mean, I think the start of the trend really, I marked the start of the trend, was Harry Potter in England when it first came out, and where they were actually issuing special editions of Harry Potter that didn't look like Harry Potter, so you could read it on public transit and nobody would, would understand. <laughs> without shame. Or yes. realizing, yeah, without shame, actually. Yeah, I wonder, are, are there any statistics available for the period before Harry Potter, which must be B.C. something? Uh, not, uh, there are no statistics available about anything before Harry Potter. Oh, I see, yes. We have no actual concrete evidence that civilization existed exactly. uh, before Harry Potter. But I, I, I know the question you're asking, and I'm not sure. Yeah. But does any, I don't know, do you want to defend the idea? Well, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I want to defend it or not. I think the whole I, genre of YA, if we can even call it, has, has been so broadly redefined now. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what it is necessarily anymore. It seems to be any book that has 
um, a teenager for a protagonist. By that standard, A Catcher in the Rye, mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Flies, Huckleberry Finn, those are all YA novels and would probably be mar- marketed in that way today. So when you, when you slam YA as, a, as, a, you know, as the elephant in the room or whatever, I, I honestly don't know if it, if it applies to every YA book out there. Does, what is the outer age limit of the definition of YA? <laughs> I, I what, suppose, didn't you just say 45? Or? Yeah. No, I think it's considered to be something like 23 or 24. A- am I right there? Or? Well, if it's key to like the, the age at which people actually move out of their parents' houses and start their lives. 32, then, uh, 33. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's getting, and it's getting higher. Yeah. Yeah. And, getting and higher. those things may be a little bit linked, too. I mean, if there's sort of a juvenilization of adult fiction tastes, tilting towards YA, it might also be because it's harder and harder to be an A. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you might come back to YA a, a little bit that way. Yeah. Are there comments, questions over there? Anybody want to? Um, I mean, to me, the, the argument against this is that, and it was really beautifully articulated in a podcast on Slate by, by Stephen Metcalf. I mean, if there's an, I mean, I sort of think if people are reading, that's good, you know? And, and one of the, I think what you're alluding to, Lewis, too, also, is that one of the things that sort of happened in YA is that people started writing challenging, complicated fiction that was, yeah, maybe targeted at people between the ages of 15 and 23 or whatever we think that, that demographic is. But it wasn't, I mean, starting with, I mean, Judy Bloom and Robert, Robert Cormier and all these people kind of came along and said, well, that doesn't mean it can't have things in it that are upsetting and difficult. You know, but then you get to your question, your well, point the about the Slate argument is that yeah. is is for purposes of the Slate article, YA is something that doesn't have that challenging aspect, you know, the way that literary fiction does, or that just simply fiction for grown-ups does. So, so in other words, she's defined it in a way that it can exactly. then be attacked. It's, exactly. So. It's, yeah. a, it's a. Sl- I'm, I'm addressing that argument, not yeah. necessarily, yeah. you know, Huckleberry Finn. Or, yeah. And I love the beginning of Charlotte's Web. What's the first line about father with the axe? The axe. Whatever yeah. it is, it's really. And I proudly would read Charlotte's Web on public transportation. <laughs> But I, I think the argument that is being made, and, and Steve, pig. Stephen Metcalf put, the, put this better than I can, but that, that part of our maturation is, you know, it's sort of like Corinthians, Corinthians, you know, I put away childish things, that there's, there's some moment of maturation where you say, all right, I'm ready to wrestle with something else, you know, I'm ready to wrestle with something that's more difficult, uh, I, I'm ready to extend myself uh, you know, in a new direction. I'm ready to read a book that may not resolve itself in a way that's satisfactory to me or may not resolve itself at all. And that if, in fact, there's this huge cohort of people between the ages of 30 and 45 who are reading young adult fiction, partly because they like the fact that it ends and it wraps itself up nicely and everything like that, that, that maybe that, there is a sort of declinist aspect to that. Maybe that's not such a great thing. I don't know. Dickens ends itself very, resolves itself very neatly. Uh, Fallen Our Stars, which Ruth Franklin bashed in her her slight piece, yeah. ends very sadly. I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 quite a dark ending. Um, so again, I, I don't know that you you can just make these blanket assumptions. In the, in the course of her article, she also makes a backhanded slap at mystery, at sort of the whole idea of genre as also being kind of juvenile. Mm-hmm. You know, something that you grow out of. Um, so it's a very it's a very literary capital L Mandarin argument that she's making. Well, also maybe the ultimate. You know, Jeff was talking earlier about the fact that you know he's got a lot of students who are skipping, leaping over YA and tackling. Uh, adult fiction, and as we know, one thing that young people really hate is anything that grown-ups are doing, so maybe we're doing this huge service to young people <laughs> by reading young adult fiction and therefore inherently making it uncool um, so that 
that I, I know at a certain point, my, I wanted to keep going with Harry Potter and my son did not. Um, and I think a certain, there were several reasons for that, but one of them was that I wanted to keep going with it. <laughs> so it became sort of an annoying dad thing. It's like Facebook. We took it, we took it over from the kids and now they're, they're parachuting out and finding their own, their own thing. Yeah. yeah. What are they finding, though? What are they doing? I don't know. I'm going to tell it. I'm the last one. They're probably reading long novels now. Instagram. Yeah. Instagram. Yeah. I think it's Instagram. Instagram. They're yeah. doing Cats of Jihad yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen. First of all, this has been a great conversation. I'm so um, excited to have had you all here. Louis Bayard, uh, Terry Hawkins, M.G. Lord, both Vandermeers, uh, Jeff and Ann. We've been live from the Yale Writers Conference. Uh, we're sitting here in the beautiful uh, lobby of the study. By the time we get here next year, uh, it will be owned by Amazon. That's one of the things they're going to do. I think they want to do hotels. Uh, they'll start in Vegas and spread out. Um, but and this has been—it's it, just a really fun experience. I would say quickly to people that New Haven is the place to be right now. Not only is this going on, which you're not really invited to come down. And are there any public events? Are there any no. like? No, no public events. Nope. So don't come down here and yeah, talk to anybody. Stay away. Um, but there is the <laughs> there are guards. There is the festival. How much time have I got here? Oh, thirty seconds. There is the festival of our arts and ideas. There's incredible stuff going on. We covered that on Tuesday. Thanks to my incredible crew who come down here and set up this thing. Big hand to everybody who showed up. We'll be back on Monday. I'm Kyone Wolf. Welcome, everybody, to my writing workshop, Dystopian Erotica Under the Sea Rom-Com Sports Thrillers, an autobiographic adventure through cooking. Who would like to present their plot summary first? Anybody? 